Mark chapter 10. When, when we look at Jesus Christ's relationship to the church, it is stressed throughout the New Testament that he is Lord over the church. He is head of the church. He is described as the chief shepherd of the church. He is described as the cornerstone of the foundation of the church. All statements, all descriptions that point to the fact that there, there is no church apart from Jesus Christ, that he is the, the founder of the church by virtue of his work in giving himself as a ransom to save sinners and to form this assembly of believers that we call the local church, over which he is Lord and head. So as we watch the life of Christ in the Gospels, we've been doing that primarily in the Gospel of John, but as we look through Matthew and Mark and Luke, one of the things that we, we learn and we see about Jesus is leadership. We see him as the, the head over the church, leading, equipping, discipling his own disciples, training them and demonstrating for them what sacrificial, loving, God-honoring, self-effacing leadership looks like. And we see that in the life of Christ and learn that for those of us who profess faith in him. So it is Palm Sunday today. I, I just spent some time this week just sort of looking through some of the stories in the weeks leading up to Palm Sunday, just some of that period uh, in the early spring, late winter, early spring, prior to that Passover, prior to the time of the crucifixion of Christ, and, and just kind of came on this portion of Mark 10 and decided to just spend some time here this morning. It is also recorded in, in Matthew's Gospel, this account uh, here. It is from really just a matter of, of weeks prior to Palm Sunday. Uh, it is one of the last things that, that takes place in the life of Jesus Christ in terms of equipping and training his disciples. And just to set the scene for the timing, we'll pick up in Mark 10.32, but just to sort of set the scene, and I'll, I'll use John just because we've, we've been in John's gospel a lot to help us in terms of our time frame. If you'll recall, John chapter 7 took place during the Feast of Booths. Jesus had come down to Jerusalem it was a fall um, celebration, a fall harvest kind of uh, honoring of God at the Feast of Booths. And so chapter 7 into chapter 8 is still that, that fall prior to the spring in which Passover would come and Jesus would be crucified. He stays in the area around Jerusalem until the raising of Lazarus in Bethany near Jerusalem. Once he raises Lazarus from the dead, which we'll get to when we get to John chapter 11, then there is this tremendous response in terms of people who come to him in faith and opposition that now is just firmed up against him at this point. There, there is such a movement toward him as a, a result of what happens with Lazarus that those who are determined to kill him now are all the more determined. And so Jesus leaves that area right after the raising of Lazarus. John 11:53 says, from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. And so the threat is growing in Jerusalem against Jesus Christ, and so he moves to the northeast to a rural area about 12 miles uh, above Jerusalem to Ephraim. If you can pull up that map, we'll just uh, take a look here. Um, see if I can aim it the right way again. There's Jerusalem, there's Ephraim. So if we follow Jesus at this point, he's essentially getting away from the, the religious leaders. It's not yet his time. This is somewhere in that late fall season. Um, we, we can track through the gospels that he seems to briefly travel north up to Galilee. 
And then Mark chapter 10, verse 1, tells us that he came back toward the south, but this time to the other side of the Jordan, it says, to the east of, of the Jordan, which would be this region of Perea. So that's where he is when we pick up in Mark chapter 10, verse 32, when it says, And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was going to happen. So he's decided at some point, so we're now jumping ahead, and it is now just prior to the time of his crucifixion in Jerusalem that it is time to move from this more wilderness area and begin to head toward Jerusalem. That is why we see the response by the disciples when it says they are astonished, they are amazed. Some of the followers, some of those, maybe not the twelve, but some of the others who've been following Jesus are afraid because they know what awaits in Jerusalem. They understand that the reason he left Jerusalem before that was because of this very focused opposition that was determined to, to, to have him executed, to have him killed. And so they know that going back, it's difficult to imagine any outcome that is good in that. Every outcome looks like it will be something violent, that there will be some kind of assault on Jesus if he goes back to that region. And so what begins here in verse 32 is this description that says Jesus is walking ahead of them. Here is Jesus walking toward what he knows is, is about to happen, what he understands, and he is leading. He is walking and leading his disciples back, and they are following, at minimum, experiencing anxiety. They are afraid of what lies ahead of them, and they are concerned, and they are following him, but he is demonstrating for us with these first steps, leadership. And that's what I want to, as we work through this passage, I just want you to think with me a little bit about some of the lessons in how Jesus leads, how he's discipling his men at this point in terms of training them and equipping them and showing them what godly leadership looks like. That should be something for all of us because all who are trusting in Jesus Christ are called to live exemplary lives. We should be leading by virtue of how we live out Christ-likeness, whether it be in a family setting or a work setting, uh, out, out and about, whatever we're doing, we should be drawing people by virtue of our lives toward Jesus Christ. And so the first thing we see here about him is he led with courage. Clearly everyone around him is at minimum stunned that he has made this decision and said we are headed for Jerusalem they are all reacting in some way that that at minimum is how, how can this be why would we do this and Jesus is leading Jesus knew the cross awaited him we'll see him describe this to the disciples in just a moment he had told them at least twice before that when he went to Jerusalem he would die Matthew's account of this same story tells us that he explained to them that it would be death by crucifixion. And so he is already explaining to them that he is going to suffer, that he is going to Jerusalem for the very purpose of encountering the Jewish leaders, knowing full well what will take place when he does. And yet he is walking toward that suffering. William Hendrickson writes this, he says, There must have been something about the bearing of Jesus, the look in his eyes, the manner of his walk, that explains the amazement of his disciples. In other words, there's, there's not a timidity about Jesus as he's walking toward Jerusalem. Any of us in that same circumstance might have gone hesitantly, slowly. Jesus is in front. He is leading. He knows what he is heading to, and he is going with a sense of resolve and, and courage 
toward what he is going to experience. The interesting thing, if we just jump forward for a minute, is to think about the disciples, who in this instance are, are clueless, even though Jesus has told them, they, they still are not fathoming all that is going on. If we go forward just a couple of months to crucifixion they have of, of Jesus, but then seven weeks later, Pentecost, these same disciples, who at this point are either amazed or in fear, these same disciples will stand in the city of Jerusalem, in the place where Jesus Christ was arrested and crucified, and they will preach the gospel of Jesus as crucified and risen. These same disciples who at this point, it, it's so hard for them to fathom what is happening, after the resurrection of Jesus, will go to that same city themselves and preach the gospel and call people to repent and believe in Jesus Christ as the risen Messiah. Even when a, a, a Jewish high priest sternly rebukes Peter and James and John and the others and says, you must stop this and, and gives the warning that there will be something, some consequences for it, their response in Acts 5.29 is we must obey God rather than men. That is the, the courage of Jesus Christ. So, so what they're seeing here, even though we're going we're gonna to read in a moment and, and the sense we'll get is the disciples are misguided at best in their thinking, the reality is Jesus is still discipling them. He's still showing them something about leadership, and it's something that he will empower them with when they become the leaders in the early church. By the power of God and his indwelling spirit, these same disciples who couldn't understand why in the world Jesus would risk his life by heading straight for Jerusalem will then be empowered to stand in that same city and boldly declare, you must believe in Jesus Christ, that we have seen him and he is risen, and you must repent and turn to him. That is, that is the power of God, and it is a wonderful display of this same courage that we see in Jesus now coming into the lives of his followers. When Jesus leads like that with courage, I, I think as with all these attributes, it should give us two responses. One is obviously worship. We, we stand in awe of our Savior, knowing the price that he would pay for our sin. But also it is an example for us to follow. This is why Paul, when he speaks of the death of the believer, says it, it, it's like a transfer into the presence of God. It is moving from here into the very presence of the Lord in heaven. And so he's able to say in 2 Corinthians 5, 6, so we are always of good courage. And, and so we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. Paul is saying we, we worship Christ and we serve him boldly because we, we, we belong to him and we understand that he holds our future. That, that when we leave here, even be it under persecution, we will go into his presence and we will stand before him. And, and so the, the urging there in 2 Corinthians is be of good courage. We should be because we know that our lives belong to him. Our eternity belongs to him. That this is a, a season here that we've been given a stewardship of service, but that ultimately it will culminate in standing in the presence of our king. So he led with courage. Second thing is that the, he led with obedience. And really this is sort of the undergirding of the whole thing is Jesus Christ obeying the Father. Verse 33, response to the disciples who are amazed and some afraid. Verse 33, Jesus says, See, we are going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. For Jesus, 
There is no mystery about what is about to happen. There's no sense of uncertainty. He is able to describe to his disciples specifically. For all of the times in John's gospel that we've read so far where Jesus has said, my hour's not yet come. And so when the crowds are coming and, and, and they want to arrest him, and Jesus says, my time has not yet come, and suddenly he just sort of disappears from their midst. It is evidence again and again that, that, that God the Father is at work in this. And it is not his time. Now it is. Now Jesus is saying to his disciples, we are going to Jerusalem, and this is specifically what will happen. There is a plan of redemption that is unfolding that will involve my sacrifice in your place, and he is precisely in step with that plan. Jesus led even toward his own crucifixion because he is obeying the will of his Father. He's doing what he has been called to do. There are times for all of us when obedience does not feel like the happy thing to do, when obeying God does not seem like the thing that our feelings want to do at that particular moment. We feel like we want to do something else. We want to insult back to the person who has just insulted us in some way. We'd rather cheat the system when we see everybody else seems to get away with doing that, so, so why can't we? We'd rather sleep in or do something else when the saints are gathering for worship because eh, just that would feel better. And yet we are called to obedience. Here is Jesus Christ obediently following the will of the Father when it means walking to his own crucifixion and he is leading the others. We're called to obedience to obey Christ, to follow what, what we know to do, what we see in Scripture. John wrote it in 1 John 5 when he says, By this we know that we love the children of God, that we keep his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. As believers in Jesus Christ, we are called to obedience, to follow what, what we see in our Savior and, and what we are called to do here. So he says to them, We're going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise. Jesus Christ led with courage, he led with obedience, and third, he led with suffering. This is the most explicit detail to date. Jesus has said before that going back to Jerusalem that his hour would come and he has spoken uh, at least in some terms about his death but here he is spelling out for the disciples this is what will happen I'm going back to be arrested by the Jewish leaders to be falsely charged and convicted by them they will then turn me over to the Romans who are the ones who can carry out the execution they have the authority to do so and and that execution will involve whipping him beating him spitting on him mocking him and ultimately crucifying him Matthew's description of this same account in Matthew 10:19 says that he explained that crucifixion was a part of this as well if the disciples were lagging behind when this journey first began, you can only imagine what is in their hearts at this moment. And now Jesus has said, this is what we are going to Jerusalem for. This is what I will experience. Yet the interesting thing is, as, as we're going to see, the disciples still, there's still a level of confusion. They're, they're still not fully grasping everything that, that, that Jesus is saying because in their minds, this can't possibly go the way that Jesus just described. Because in their minds, this somehow has got to be victorious. Jesus is the Messiah. He's going to be the ruler. 
he's going to be king. And so, yeah, they hear him, but it's kind of what we do as a defense mechanism. When you get bad news and you sort of try to imagine a different scenario, you sort of fantasize that, well, maybe if it would all go this way, and, and we sort of picture it in a different sense instead of what is reality. And that, that's kind of what I think the disciples do to some point here, in that in their minds, this has to end well. This is their Messiah. So yes, he's saying this, but they're not fully grasping it at this point, and we'll see that when we see James and John in just a moment. Suffering that Jesus is walking to is something that we are called to as believers. We don't always embrace suffering, and yet we are told again and again in Scripture that following Christ will include suffering for Christ. Paul said it in Philippians 1.29, it has been granted to you, it's been gifted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him but also suffer for his sake because of our belief in Jesus Christ. Suffering that comes about just because we are believers, whether it be in the form of persecution or whether it be in the form of hardship in which people watch our lives and see Christ in us in the middle of, of pain and suffering. Um, Peter reaffirms this in 1 Peter 2.21, for, for to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. The suffering of Jesus Christ, his obedient walking toward the cross and all of the agony of him giving his life for us is not only the, the glory of the gospel and what gives us the hope of salvation, but it is also intended for us, the New Testament writers say, to be an example for us of, of the suffering that, that we will face as believers and how our heart attitude should be in the course of that suffering. If we are going to suffer, and we know we will, then we are called to, in the midst of that pain, still hold fast to Christ, still believe the truths about the gospel, still live out the realities of, of what we believe holds us together, which is the, the truth of what Christ has done. Our suffering may be a path that leads others to Christ. And so we are being reminded here that even in his leadership and suffering, he is giving us an example. So at that moment, then, we transition. He has just given them the specifics. Verse 35, And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. So one of the reasons I settled in this passage is because we are going through the Gospel of John. I think it's helpful for us from time to time to look at some of these individuals in the New Testament who we tend to see in the New Testament letters and, and regard with a certain level of maturity and sort of being on a, a spiritual plane that we look up to a little bit and remind ourselves that that is a work of God's grace. That John was not, not, we see John writing the Gospel of John, the Epistles of John, the Book of Revelation. We understand from, from what we know of, of John's life and from, his, uh, from what he writes even in Revelation that John spent the last years of his life as essentially a political prisoner for his preaching of the Gospel. Exiled out to an island, no more warmth of family, no more friendship with brothers and sisters in Christ, alone, experiencing just that total dependence on God because he had no fellowship with others, and so suffering in exile. 
He was a man who was transformed by the Spirit of God. Passages like this remind us that John was not always so wise. It is a gracious work of God that grows us and transforms us. If you can think back to when you first believed in Jesus Christ, by God's grace, hopefully you can look and see what God has done in your life and how he has changed you and matured you and put you through circumstances that, that have affected how you think and how you act. That is God's kindness at work. Well, here John and James are giving a request that is arrogant. It is, it is carelessly sinful at, at this point. It is ambitious to a fault. It is craving honor. Not to be ignored, and to their credit, is that there is some measure of faith in James and John. There is something in them, having just heard what Jesus said, which is, I will be beaten and spit on and mocked and crucified, for them to come with this request does speak something of their faith. Because in their minds, there is still the conviction that he will be victorious. We believe that Jesus Christ will conquer, that he will sit on the throne. The only problem that goes wrong with their request is they want to be seen in the seats next to his throne. So when, when everybody finally sees what they believe to be true, that Jesus Christ will reign victorious, when you look and see Jesus, the next ones you'll see are James and John sitting right there because, after all, they were right with him, you know, through all of this stuff there on earth. And so they're coming with this, this arrogant request with a measure of faith. They believed in the Messiahship of Jesus Christ. What they could not grasp was the cost that Jesus would endure in order to be at that place of being conquering over sin and death and being the risen king. So they are consumed at this point with ensuring themselves a place of honor. Matthew's version of this in Matthew 10 tells us that their mother came with them, and Matthew describes their mother as doing the brunt of the talking. Let's be really clear here. In a very male-dominated culture like this was, this was not mom dragging the boys along and saying, I want to make sure you get your place. This was the boys wanting their place and figuring, mom might help. It doesn't hurt, you know, if we go to Jesus. And if we just ask, we'll bring mom, and mom will say it. And, and you know how that works, right? Mom's got a little more pull, perhaps, in some way. She, she might, you know, tug at Jesus a little bit differently. I, I don't think there's any sense here in which she's sort of leading this effort they want this they want these seats they want to be first they want to be next to christ and using mom is just part of the the ploy to get their way that ironically the first thing that they ask for is essentially a blank check teacher do for us whatever we ask and, and jesus very firmly at that point says well what is that and and gets them to be specific at this moment and this is when they say we we essentially want fame we want to sit next to you when you are in glory, we want to be there. We want to be seen as your right-hand and left-hand man, which is remarkably audacious in light of what Jesus has just said, to talk about his suffering and his crucifixion and to say, hey, you know, we want to make sure that, that when you win in this thing that we're there. So look at Jesus' response. This is really what I want us to key on, because this is where I think we see again how Jesus leads them. He is, he's going to disciple these guys in this moment in a remarkable way. Verse 38. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. 
And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. So Jesus led, we've seen courage, obedience, suffering. Fourth, I would say he led with grace. Imagine for just a moment that you are Jesus. You have said what you have said about the suffering that you are going to in Jerusalem and the fact that you will be crucified, and you get this question from James and John. Hey, Jesus, can we make sure we're sitting next to you when you come into your kingdom? Can we be the ones who are right there, the victors alongside of you? I don't know how you'd respond. I can pretty safely say I would not respond the same way Jesus did. And I can say that from parental experience because I can think of numerous times when my kids have come to me with off-the-wall requests like, can we do this or can we go there? Can we hang out with this person? And my response has not been, let's have a teachable moment here. <laughs> it's usually been something more along the lines of, are you serious? What? You want to go where? You want to do what? Jesus responds with no sarcasm, no anger, no pointed nailing of them for saying what they say. Instead, Jesus sees this with the men who are going to be the early leaders of the church as a teachable moment in which to disciple them, in which to be able to take them aside and say, listen, let's, let's, let's think about your request for a moment. Let's talk about it. And, 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 and put some truth on this. Jesus does not mock them for their foolishness. Instead, he walks with the disciples. The disciples clearly misjudging their own strength, clearly sinfully overconfident. We, we will see it certainly when we get to, to Peter at, at the point of the crucifixion when he's denying Jesus Christ, that that's just one example of what will be many of the disciples doing foolish things and, and showing that they were not what, what they think they are, that they were still going to fail and struggle. And yet Jesus chose to instruct them with grace. They didn't grasp at all what the cost was that he was talking about of what this cup meant and what this baptism meant. When they, when they sort of glibly respond, we are able. Jesus, when he speaks of the cup that he is to drink, that, that cup is a picture that comes from back in the Old Testament. It is a, a, a constant portrait of the judgment of God. Taking God does it with enemy nations where they will drink the cup of his wrath. And Jesus is, is going to experience on the cross taking the cup of his father's judgment. He will experience judgment for sin in what he experiences on the cross. And when he speaks of baptism, that term baptism almost always has to do with identification. When someone is baptized in water, they are publicly identifying themselves as a believer in Jesus Christ, as being joined to the body of Christ. When you become a believer, you are baptized into the body of Christ. You are identified in the body of Christ. And so when Jesus uses those terms, he is speaking of what he will take when he is identified, made to be sin. He identifies with, with, with sinners in the sense that our sin is put on him and there is a solidarity Jesus has with sinners, not by anything he's ever done, but because of what he is made to be on the cross when he experiences the wrath of God in that moment that he is forsaken on the cross by the Father. David Garland writes, Jesus will not be sprinkled with a bit of suffering. He will be submerged in it. And he asks them if they are willing to share his fate. You willing to drink this cup that I'm going to drink and be baptized with this baptism? And they say we are able. The beauty of the naivete of their response 
is that neither they nor any of us who are trusting in Jesus Christ will ever experience that cup or that baptism because Jesus experienced it for us. Because he drank the cup and because he endured the cross and because he experienced the wrath of God, none of us do have to drink of that cup or experience that baptism into the wrath of God because we stand forgiven because of what Jesus Christ did. Yet Jesus did say to the disciples, there is still a sense in which you will drink of this. Because he says in verse 39, the cup I drink you will and the baptism with which I'm baptized you will be baptized. Jesus is again referring to suffering. There will be experiences that you will have because of your identification with me that will cost you dearly to the point that the book of Acts will tell us James was the, the first martyr amongst the disciples. is the first one who was killed by Herod as, as sort of a public example of, of taking care of one of these followers of Christ. They will learn that the path to exaltation in the kingdom of Christ is a path of lowliness and humility. They, they will learn that. And so Jesus is not... Um, exaggerating here when he says you will experience, experience this because he is teaching them in this moment. You, you will suffer. You will, for identifying with me, things will happen to you that wouldn't happen otherwise, and you'll go through that experience. So they began to taste early of that in the church. Verse 41, and when the ten heard it, so the rest of the disciples, now this this. Word gets back that what James and John had done. When the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Let's stop there. Jesus led with courage, obedience, suffering, grace, and then fifth, he led with serving. The reaction of the other ten, we would like it to be that they were indignant at how in the world could you go and do that? You know, you, you just heard what Jesus said about suffering. That was really dumb, you know, for you guys to go and ask that. Clearly that's not the case based on the lesson that Jesus went on and he calls all the disciples and begins to teach them. Clearly what they were indignant about was you two went rogue on us. You two went and cut the line thinking that, that you could go in and, and secure some special spots in the future. And they are angry at James and John for what they've just done. How could you cut in front of us and, and try to secure this? And so, again, I just think it's wonderful how Jesus takes this opportunity to say, all of you, come here. <laughs> again, I, my sense at this point is, Y'all are just being fools, you know? Do you understand what you're saying here? And instead, Jesus takes them all and he sits them down and he says, I know what you're striving for here. You're striving for greatness. You're striving for acclaim. And what Jesus does in his kindness is he says, let me tell you the path to greatness. Is it greatness you want? Let me tell you how you get it. You be a servant. You serve at every opportunity. You serve. You, you give. You care for it. You don't look to receive, but you serve. Because greatness doesn't come by association. It doesn't come by saying, hey, we hung out with Jesus. We've got pictures of being with Jesus, right? So we're special. Greatness comes by listening to Jesus, by learning from Jesus, by, by following Jesus, by, by doing what Jesus did, by the grace of God, living out Christ-likeness. And so he's, he's kindly 
helping them to see, let me, let me show you what greatness looks like. The worldly view of greatness is what he describes here, and that's that desire to simply rule over people. It is the desire to be in charge, to have authority of some kind so that people do what I want them to do when I want them to do it. We all have that experience at various points in life. If, if, if everybody would just do what I want to do, then there wouldn't be traffic when I go to work because they would have all adjusted their schedules around mine, right? And he's saying that that's, that is the life of the unbeliever. That's his point in verse 42 when he says, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. That's how they do it. That's how the world does it. And that's not just dictators or kings. There can be people who misuse authority and who wield power carelessly in their homes, in their businesses, even in churches. Because too often the leadership that is admired by the secular world is leadership that gets what it wants. If you can take the authority and the power that you have and you can get what you want done, then in secular terms, you are a strong leader. You are the kind of person who, who gets it done. And the secular world will generally admire that. Jesus says, not so among you. That should not be how it looks for those who follow Christ. That's not the model. Forcing your agenda is not the model to follow. If you are to be my disciple, he says, you are to be a servant. And in fact, not a selective one. He just cuts us off on another point there when he says, for whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Because even in our service sometimes, we want to be selective about who we serve, the people that we like and, and for whom we have some expected benefit from serving and who will probably serve us in some way later on. And instead, he says, you just need to be the slave of all. Your mindset needs to be one of service for people, to God and, and to man, and not picking and choosing. Instead of receiving, you're to be giving. James Edwards writes, Thus, to fail in being a servant is not simply to fall short of an ideal condition, but to stand outside an existing condition that corresponds to the kingdom of God. In other words, if, if, you're, if you're primarily about power and authority and dominion over others, if, if you get your kicks out of telling people what to do, and you are probably not dwelling in the kingdom of God. Because he's saying that that's not how it works in the kingdom of God. That's, that, that, that's not a demonstration of Christ-likeness. That's just a demonstration of secular worldlyism. Because if you do business and treat others by lording authority over them, then you are neglecting the only one who is Lord. Who is, who does have the right to do that and, and still doesn't. Still comes to serve and, and to give his life. This teaching was as radical amongst Jews in this first century and certainly amongst Greek culture as it is for our world today. And just to make his point that much more clear, Jesus shifts in terminology as he's speaking through this and says, whoever would be great among you must be your servant and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. You want to be great? Be a servant. You want to be the greatest? Be a slave. Um, see the picture? He's, he's taking them from table waiter, which is what that word for servant primarily had the idea. That somebody who, who, wasn't, who had at least had some esteem in culture. They, they served others. They waited on tables. He says, you want to be great? That needs to be your attitude. You want to be even greater? Then you should expect to get no esteem. You should not expect honor in, in return for what you do. You should just serve. 
because you're dedicated and committed to wanting to serve and not looking for what it gets you. You want to be great? Wait on other people. Want to be really great? Be like one who is least of all. We, we go wrong on this, I go wrong on this, when even when we do stuff out of serving and then get irritated because someone else got more thanks than, than, than we did. You know, we've served and they've served and somehow they're getting honor for that and we're not getting much honor and it's like, come on, I, I did at least that much. How come they're not thanking me in the same way? The, the, the idea of being slave of all is no expectation of regard. The expectation of regard is ultimately one that comes in heaven when we hear well done, good, and faithful what? Servant. Servant. Well done. You, you've, you've served. You've, you've given your life to minister to others. People who are outside of the body of Christ, who are not believers in Jesus Christ, cannot serve just for the sake of serving. Yes, they, they may do foundations and be benevolent and do what things that are kind and charitable, at least on the surface. But, but Scripture talks about all of these good deeds as being like filthy rags. That's because in all that they do, there's always going to be some level of mixed motives. There's always going to be some level of, hopefully somebody saw this. Hopefully I get something from this. Hopefully there's a tax break from this. Hopefully there's something that, that comes out of this for me. If you have been redeemed by Jesus Christ, if you have been delivered by him, then what he has called you to is serving for the sake of responding in worship to him. Just serving him and serving the people that he's created because that's the privilege that he's given you and I to do. Serving those that perhaps he is going to save and draw into his body. Final statement here is verse 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus led with courage, obedience, suffering, grace, and then finally sacrifice. Up to this point, Jesus has told his disciples that he must die. Now he's telling them why. This is really the first time that he's explaining to them the why behind his suffering. It is not just for moral example or, or, or for uh, just an act of kindness in any way. He is saying that this cross that I am walking toward cannot be avoided. I am walking toward this cross because it is a ransom. There has been some injury or some crime for which compensation must be paid. Some bail must be paid. The prisoner has no capacity to pay that bail at all. The, the offender has no capability whatsoever to bring anything to satisfy the one that he has offended. The guilty one has no way to do anything about his guilt, has no way to lessen his guilt or to work it off in some way. And the offense is clear. We have been made by a holy God created in his image to glorify him, and we have broken his law time and time again. He is the offended one. And the only way that he can be satisfied is through the penalty of death. Because we have offended him, because of what we have done, we stand justly condemned, we stand deservedly imprisoned, and we are waiting for the final completion of the execution of his judgment, his final wrath, which is eternal punishment, which he describes again and again. Only one who has never offended, who has never broken the law, who has been perfect, can stand in our place 
and take that punishment and, and absorb God's wrath. Only that one can stand in our place and pay our debt as the ransom for our souls. And that's what Jesus Christ has done. That's how he has come to be a ransom. Theologians have debated this passage for generations. of who's, who's the recipient of this ransom? Is this some kind of ransom paid to Satan? This is a ransom paid to the offended one. And the offended one is God who is offended by our sin. We have broken his law. And there must be something done to satisfy him. And what Jesus Christ endured on the cross was to pay the purchase that buys us out of slavery to sin and death. We are the ones who are imprisoned and hopeless until Jesus does this. Ephesians 5.2 says, Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Because of his offering to his father, his perfect sacrifice, we can grab Romans 8.1 and say, there is therefore now no, what? Condemnation, right, for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because we are in him because of what he has done, we don't face the deserved condemnation of God. And Jesus says here he gave it willingly. He sacrificed his life for the many. When he says many there at the end of verse 45, he's speaking of every tongue and tribe and nation. The, the, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ wasn't simply as a Jewish Messiah for Jewish people. It was to be the Savior of the world. It was a sacrifice that would be applied broadly to all that he would bring to himself and who would come to faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus paid the ransom that delivers us from the power of sin and death, not only to to save us and give us an eternal hope, but to give us the opportunity now to be servants, to by his power and his grace, to be leaders who serve, who sacrifice, who are willing to be generous and kind to others, even when we don't think they deserve it, even when they've got no way of paying us back, even when they don't say thank you, we have the opportunity to serve. Let's pray. Father, we look back and think of Jesus Christ as he's riding into that city on Palm Sunday and the crowd is shouting, save, Hosanna, save, Lord, save. Lord, there's no doubt that there were mixed understandings in that crowd of what that looked like. Some just thinking that your son had come to, to be the king who would rule the day and overthrow the Romans. Lord, we have the benefit of seeing the, the full gospel and the, the New Testament teaching us that we desperately should have been in that crowd as well, saying, save us, rescue us from our sin. Rescue us from our futile way of thinking. Rescue us from the, the guilt that we bear. Thank you, Jesus Christ, for giving your life as a ransom. Thank you for delivering us from the power of sin and death and enabling us now by your power work at work in us to serve others. Pray that this week, Lord, we would look for opportunities to apply this passage to be servants, to be not looking for our own regard or esteem or applause, but being content just doing what you have called us to do, obeying you, loving others, trusting that you will bring the fruit to bear and that the greatest reward we could have is to hear you say, well done. Thank you for your spirit enabling us to serve. Thank you for your great kindness toward us and your son's sacrifice in whose name we pray.